But tonight, um, I want to talk about self-worth uh, from an angle that, um, if you're not used to my preaching, might surprise you. Um, but it's because I think the, the reason why there's uh, so much out there in terms of podcasts and books and articles on self-help and self-worth is because uh, I think for most of us, in one way or another, we're not at peace with ourselves. And when we sense that, we tend to veer in one of two opposite directions. I think we fall off the cliff in one of two ways. The first one, the first extreme is self-deflation, where we're always down on ourselves. Nothing we do is good enough. Uh, We're our own worst critic. And we can't ever be at peace because we can't shake our shortcomings. Uh, We can't find the answer in ourselves. And so we deflate. The opposite extreme, as you could probably imagine, is self-inflation, right? It's the total opposite. We build up our resumes, we build up our reputation, we accomplish things, we seek peace and comfort in our abilities and our track record. So we think the answer is in ourselves, and so we inflate. And both of those are extremes that are sad places to be. And truthfully, a lot of us oscillate between the two. And so you experience highs, and then you experience really deep lows. When you oscillate between self-inflation, I am pretty great. And then self-deflation, actually, I'm, I'm not that great at all. And then you read the next self-help book, and you're like, oh, I am pretty great. And then you realize you're not that great, and then you're back in the depths again. And I want to rescue you from that cycle, if possible. Not me, but the Lord through his word, to avoid those two extremes. So again, you can look at any bookshelf and any store and see all the books that are selling, all right, like hotcakes. I don't know where that, trans, where that phrase came from, why, why something sells like hotcakes, but right, they're flying off the shelves. They're on New York Times bestseller list. They're on Amazon's top list. They're in Goodreads' top list. Everybody loves them because what they're selling is self-worth. I'll give you a couple titles. I've not read these. Uh, I don't recommend you read them either. Here's here's one. Worthy. How to believe you are enough and transform your life. Here's a second one. Building unstoppable self-confidence for teens. The fail-safe formula for finding yourself, overcoming limitations, and creating your best life from the inside out. Here's another one. 10,000 plus positive affirmations. I guess you just read these affirmations to yourself. Maybe looking in a mirror while you do it. I just poked through a few of these. Affirmation number two. I deserve the very best in every aspect of my life. Hmm. Affirmation number 19. I am worthy of manifesting my bigger desires. Affirmation number 20. It is impossible for me to fail. I don't know about you, but by the time I get to number 20, even if I'm not a Christian, I'm like, what are you selling me here, man? But sadly, this kind of thinking bleeds over into Christian books as well, supposedly Christian books. And what the authors are trying to do is to solve this this quest for peace in this cycle of inflation and deflation, looking within yourself. And what they do is point you to yourself. 
for the answer. They want you to look at yourself more. So really, what the Christian authors are doing is seeing what's selling and then Jesusifying it and sell it on the Christian shelf. Now, I've not read any of these, but I'm admitting to you that I'm judging books by their covers here. And uh, I think actually you can tell a lot from the covers of books. Here's one that's called Get Out of Your Head. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds like your problems are made up. So just get out of your own head and be positive. Another one is uh, winning the war in your mind. So you can see that these are kind of uh, the title smack of a sort of easy selling, you can do itness that appeals to self-worth. It's, it's in your head. The battle's in your mind. Think, man. Right? Rescue yourself here. It's in you. Another book, again, this is in the Christian section. The Best of You, where the author promises to help you find your true self, find your voice, set wise limits, and still be a loving person. I find that hilarious. It's true. If you're so focused on yourself, you might have a hard time loving other people. If, you're, if your main point of rescue is self-love, you might have a hard time loving other people. So at least the author is like, and you still get to love other people if you read my book. Here's another one. Self-love made easy. Learn to value yourself and see yourself through God's eyes. You're so great. Here's another. The gift of being yourself. The sacred call to self-discovery. The description to that one says, knowing your true self is inextricably related to discerning God's purposes for you. You know how you know your purpose? Look inside yourself. Really? Not the Bible, maybe? Here's another one. (laughs) I don't know what. The road back to you. Here's a subtitle. An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery. Really? I had to double click, make sure. Wait, am I still in the Christian section? Yes, it's a Christianized version of just Enneagram stuff. To discover yourself, the power that resides in you. It's all self-help, just slapped with a Christian label on top. Now, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul uh, helps us with this, actually. Because Paul, before meeting Christ, He was the self-inflated type. I'm not sure if he vacillated very often into the self-deflated type, but he was the self-inflated type for sure. He admits it in Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this evening, briefly. Paul saw a lot of value in himself, actually, but when he met Christ, he viewed all those points of self-worth differently after meeting Christ. So rather than looking to himself for worth, Paul found worth outside of himself and that's actually where he found real treasure that's when paul escaped this vacillation between inflation deflation or staying fixated on inflation maybe for himself and he actually looking back on that calls that trash that was garbage all that real treasure is when i found it outside of myself. This is when Paul gained actual joy, his real reason for rejoicing, and it had nothing to do with himself or looking inwardly. So like I said, if you can turn there, 
Uh, Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be uh, to see Paul unpack this for us. And we're not going to look at all the details in this uh, amazing passage, which could easily be a multi-sermon series, obviously, especially those of you who are familiar with Philippians 3. But I want us to briefly see that Paul is trying to convince his readers, which right now is us, to not listen to the haters. Okay? That's actually what Paul's saying. Hey, you stop listening to the haters in your life. But the ironic thing is that in this case, the haters for the Christians in Philippi are not the people saying that you can't do it, you're not good enough. Paul's saying the haters in your life are actually the ones saying you are good enough. Just look in yourself and you're all good. He calls those people the haters. Doesn't that sound backwards from what we would, how we would define a hater today? Get rid of the haters in your life that don't help you with your self-affirmation. Paul's saying get rid of the haters in your life that keep telling you that self-affirmation is the way to go. Those are the haters actually. They'll make your life miserable. So he goes into it in Philippians chapter 3 where he admits that he used to play the self-worth game. He used to run the self-esteem race and that he was the best at it. He was the best at it. He was saying all my points of self-worth, I would demolish any of you if you try to stack your resume up against mine. Okay? And it was still garbage. Philippians chapter 3, and we're looking at 1 through 11. We'll take a few things at a time. First, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So just pause here real quickly. You see here, Paul is calling out these dogs, these homeless scavenging false teachers that were trying to convince the Philippians to keep all of the Old Testament rules and regulations, including circumcision, as a way to gain meaning in life, as a way to count worth in themselves. So he's not saying the Old Testament's stupid, forget it. He's saying using the Old Testament as a way to create a checklist and go, I did this, I did this, I did this. It's performance-based so that you can look at your checklist and go, I'm pretty good. So that you can affirm yourself in a Christianized way by looking at all the spiritual boxes you check. And there's people in their congregation that are, that are teaching this stuff. They probably had their own versions of road back to you. And he's telling them, those are dogs actually. And they're trying to take advantage of you. It's all a waste. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory, not in self, in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, I don't put any confidence. We don't put confidence in ourselves. We don't look inside of ourselves to find worth, to find what makes me confident. We find that where? In, in Christ Jesus. That's outside of me. He says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. You want to play the self-worth game? I played that game and I was really good at it. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcise on the eighth day. These are his boxes, okay? Circumcise on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, meaning he kept the law with strict accuracy, Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, 
under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So why does Paul take all of those things that he used to value in himself and now marks them as total loss? It's right there in verse 8. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing, not myself, of knowing Christ Jesus. Why in the world would he take that astounding resume, as he puts it in a sense, and then count it, put it now in the loss column actually? Because in comparison with gaining Christ, that's what it is. He found real treasure outside of himself and found out that looking for treasure inside of himself was a big fat waste of time. He found that Christ Jesus is worthy, that knowing Christ is worth everything, that Christ is worth so much that the value we thought we had can be considered trash by comparison. That's what he calls it in the next line, verse 9. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let me read that one more time and point something out I think is really important for you. For his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, in order that I may gain Christ. Do you see how he had to dump the resume in order to gain the treasure of Christ? I had to count this as loss in order to gain the treasure of Christ. This is why it's so crazy when Christian books are like, the way that you actually, that Christ actually helps you is to take a road back to yourself. Wait, this is what I have to see as loss, actually. All my gain, all my worth, all that I used to affirm about myself. Paul is saying, I had to basically exchange it. Because you can't hold the two treasures at once. You trade it. And for him, it was an easy trade. An easy trade. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that, so that I may gain Christ. And he traded, he made that exchange and found the real worth in Christ. And what is that real worth that Paul is after? It's not fame, it's not money, it's not popularity, it's not to be the cool kid. It's righteousness. And as I was writing this, I was trying to be honest with myself. How many of us really care about righteousness? Or if any of you are not believers, you haven't come to Christ and you just came here to please your aunt or something, I don't know, whatever, it's Christmas time and you came, I'm glad that you're here, but I'm trying to, if I were you and I'm like, ah, I'm not a Christian, so what do I care about righteousness? There's a lot of things that I find valuable, but not righteousness. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know what? Actually, I think you do care about righteousness. I think we all care about righteousness on some level. Some people think they don't care about righteousness, but I bet they do. Because righteousness means to be morally pure. It means you're in the right. You're justified in your thoughts and actions. And isn't that what we're after deep down? When people talk about you behind your back at work, that kills, right? We don't like that. Because they're either spreading lies or, or maybe even taking true things but framing those two things in a way that puts you in a bad light. That's what we don't like about it. If they were standing around the water cooler and saying good things about you, we wouldn't have a problem with it. But if they're standing around the water cooler and saying bad things about you, then we have a problem with it. Bad versus good. They say good things, I don't have a problem with it. They say bad things, I have a problem with it. What am I after there? Righteousness. Righteousness. So I think that's why it bothers us when people diminish us in their, in their conversations. 
We don't want to be diminished as wrong or unworthy of friendship or trust or love. We care about being right, and none of us wants to be thought of as being wrong. And so Paul's saying deep down inside, that thing that we're after is righteousness. Even though it sounds like a Christian-y term, it's a basic thing for life. And this is what Paul is after. He says, I want to, verse 9, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So I don't want a righteousness that comes out of my performance and my checklist thing. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, not that comes from self, but from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That means that this value of knowing Christ is so supreme, it persists beyond death. That's why I think he brings the the resurrection into it. It can never be taken away from you. This is one of the problems of the self-worth track. If you find all all your worth in yourself and yourself dies, your worth ends. It's a dead end. When it ends, you can't take your accolades with you. You can't continue building on your resume any further. It just all goes away. But knowing Christ means to enjoy him forever. It's an endless treasure. It's forever treasure. It's forever worth. So he says knowing Christ means to enjoy him forever beyond the grave. That is the meaning of Christmas. Jesus experiences birth in order to defeat death. Jesus endures temptation in order to lead us in righteousness. Jesus undergoes pain in order to bring us peace. Jesus is humiliated by accusations so that we can be liberated by atonement. So if we repent of our sins, including our enamored infatuation with ourselves, then we can undergo the greatest exchange imaginable, Christ's death for ours, Christ's life for ours. So here's the point. Jesus lived out the greatest resume. He actually checked all the boxes so that we can throw ours out and cling to his. And not normally, that's cheating. <laughs> if you apply to a job and instead of bringing your resume, you bring somebody else's resume and say that's you, that's a criminal offense. I mean, you're, you're a liar. <laughs> if they find out, you're fired, right? If you're trying to take an exam and you swap out your Scantron for someone else, do they even use Scantrons anymore? I'm suddenly really old up, up here. I mean, that's not your test. That Somebody else took that test and you're exchanging it for your. But Paul's saying... That's actually the great thing about Christ is when you look at Christ's resume, you're like, wow, that's worthy. And no matter what you did, you can't compete with that. But God's not asking you to compete with it. What he's asking you to do is exchange it. That's amazing. Why would he do that? It was called grace, not performance. So the good news of Christmas, this Christ Savior that's come, to rescue us from either self-inflation or self-deflation is to not find worth in ourselves. We can let go of the dead-end road of self-worth and instead gain the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's where you find peace. That's where you find hope. Now, when Paul releases his grip on all of his self-worth and instead he does that exchange and he clings to the true treasure of knowing Christ, is Paul now all down in the dumps about it? Is he writing like, oh, I wish I could find worth in myself, but I can't. It has to be Jesus. 
he, I mean, he starts out in verse one, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, right? It's like he found the true place to find joy and he wants to let other people know, stop looking in, inside yourselves to find it. And all these crazy scavenger dogs that show up in church and write all these crazy books that tell you, find it in yourself, don't listen to them. Find it in Christ because it's not in ourselves. A passage like this is designed to reorient our feelings of unworthiness and self-disesteem and put those into perspective of the dignity of worship. In other words, the, the very place we find dignity, purpose, fulfillment is exactly in that place where we find worth not inwardly, but outwardly. Not in others, but in the one who is holy other. God is revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We find wholeness in worship because only his righteousness saves. And that's an interesting word, isn't it? Worship is worth-ship. That's what worship is. So when books are telling you, find your worth in yourself, they're saying, worship yourself. You have the worth-ship. That, that's at the core what it means. It's like saying valueness. But when Christ is worth all to us, that's when we're truly at peace with ourselves. It's his worth that is our peace. It's his worth that is our wholeness, not our worth. But this shouldn't get us down in the dumps. We should feel a, actually a profound, a profound elation, a deep settledness, we can say, in Christ's worth. Looking to our own worth is empty and it's depressing. That's why each year more of those self-help books come out. You just keep need to, you keep, you have to keep throwing those affirmations down. A thousand plus affirmations in that one book, he's going to have to come out with part two because it just goes down a bottomless hole. It's empty and unfulfilling. Now, I just want to be really clear before I wrap things up that we do, we do have dignity as God's creation. We are created in God's image after all. And this is what makes us distinct from the rest of creation in that sense. There is, um, of value in our existence in the sense that we are created to relate to God, we are created to worship God, we are created to experience God personally, but notice all that value is Godward. It's an extrinsic value. It's not value in myself, it's the value that I have being made to look at the value of someone else. That's where I find peace. We are objects of God's love, but we're not loved because we're lovable, we're loved because God is love. And there's a big difference there. Now that shouldn't get you down. Think about it. If we were lovable and God demonstrated his love by Christ dying for us to have life, then we'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, look at my value. But if we're not deserving and there's nothing in us that merits Christ dying for us and God still, while we were yet sinners demonstrated his love for us and Christ's death on our behalf, then our only response can be, worthy is the lamb. That's glorious. My purpose is not me. My purpose is God in Christ and to worship him. That is a glorious purpose. I don't find worth in self-discovery. I find it in the discovery of the greatest treasure in all the universe, the majesty of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Now, as a final way to drive this home, all right, before we end with a couple of songs, 
I want to point out attention to a classic Christmas hymn, Oh Holy Night. You know that one, right? Oh Holy Night. That one that really stretches your diaphragm to sing. I love it. And there's that, long, that, that, that line right in the beginning where John Dewey, the, the author of the English version, says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. That line, that section, well, the whole song really is a translation of the original French. Now, I don't speak French. I don't know French. I'm not even sure if I know somebody who knows French, to be honest. But when I look up translations and I kind of checked a couple different sites to make sure this is the right deal, the original French, I'm going to give it to you in English because you don't want to hear me botch French. Most of us wouldn't understand that anyway, I suppose. Here's here's the original French. Now, I want to find out who the original author is because this is great. This is great. Here's how the original first opening section went. When the man God came down to us to erase the original stain. Now, the author is admitting our problem is we're damaged goods, and we're damaged goods way back from the garden, and it just goes from generation to generation. There's an original stain that has to be wiped out, and man can't do it. The God-man has to come and do it, okay? When the man-God came down to us to erase the original stain and to stop the wrath from his father, not allowed to say that anymore, and to stop the wrath from his father, the whole world thrilled with hope. That's great. John Dewey translated it to English by saying, you'll notice he's missing a few things. God man's not there. Wrath is not there. And then he adds something really interesting. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he, Christ, appeared and the soul felt its worth. Hmm. We're in error and in sin. Pining meaning it's not making things out of wood. (laughs) Pining is your longing, your hoping, your looking. So there's our quest, our quest for peace. Where do we find it? Okay, Paul's arguing you find it outside of yourself. This author, John Dewey, saying the world is laying in sin and in error, pining for something. And then when Christ appeared, that holy baby sitting in that manger, and we reflect on this one who has come to rescue us, the feeling is the soul felt its worth. So when I look at Jesus, I go, huh, I'm worth that. Do you see what he's doing? When we behold Christ, we behold our worth. Because Christ coming to die for me teaches me, in his opinion, teaches me that, hmm, I'm worth the cross to God. Mm. That doesn't sound like Philippians 3 to me. Now, lest you go, Lucas, it sounds like you're nitpicking a classic hymn. (laughs) Not allowed to touch them. They're not inspired, folks, okay? They're they're not, the the Old Holy Night is not the 67th book of the Bible. We're allowed to challenge it a little bit. Now, when you look up the author, John Dewey, who did that translation, you find out he was a Unitarian minister. Let me just break that down for you really fast. Unitarians don't believe in the Trinity. 
Jesus, they're fine calling Jesus a savior. They're fine calling Jesus a king, but he's not equal with God. He had to delete God, man. So he had to change the French line about that. Unitarians don't believe in the doctrine of original sin, that we all have inherited this problem in, in Adam. So he had to change the line about original stain. And then you'll also notice that he deleted the wrath part because you can't have that either, all right? But what you notice is the elevation of man in his theology. If Jesus is not God, then Jesus is a man only. That's what Unitarians believe. That's what John Dewey believed, the the translator of that hymn. If Jesus is not God, then Jesus is a man. If Jesus is a man and he is capable of great things, so are we since we are man as he was. You see it? Unitarians are selling self-worth in a sense. Jesus did it. And he's pure man. He's not God man. He's man, meaning you can do it. So Jesus coming shows me how I can do it. Road back to you much? If we don't have original sin impeding us, then we can aspire to greatness because there's a kind of greatness residing in us. Just tap into it. Battle of the mind, man. So in Dewey's translation, when the person witnesses Christ, looks on him as a worship of christ but instead the worthness of self is that what we're supposed to reflect upon when i see jesus a baby the humbled word become flesh in order to endure temptation suffering torture and death so that i might have life am i supposed to think wow i'm really worth it no i'm supposed to think wow he is so worthy now don't worry i'm not suggesting we cancel the song I am suggesting an edit. Rather than singing till he, Christ, appeared and the soul felt its worth, I think we could do till he appeared and the soul felt his worth. And then that complies with the rest of the song that is so Christocentric and so Christ-glorifying. Just with that shift. So we're going to sing that in a moment, and you'll probably see the, the line change, and I hope that you would sing it that way with me. And I'm not saying that every church that doesn't make this change, you know, is singing heresy. Um, but I think for us it would be helpful to keep the focus of those lyrics on Christ and our search for worth and value as one that finds its answer only in Christ. That Christ is not a mirror to show us our worth, but that we were created as mirrors to reflect his worth and that we should sing Christmas songs that way. Why? Because the other way is empty and leads us nowhere. But putting Christ in the center is where peace is truly found. I want to lead us and get us, I'm not going to lead you in song, y'all don't want that. But I'm 